Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Podcast. I'm your host, Titus. Today, in our postmodern conservative series, I am joined by a new interlocutor, Matt Shapiro, his polymath on Twitter, somebody I've been following for years, who does quant, who is an unusual and very interesting kind of conservative and has, over the last epidemic months, gone over to Substack to write about what is happening in America. The situation by cases, by deaths, by vaccines in the various regions, how are people dealing with things, and he is also starting all sorts of very interesting projects like oral histories of the epidemic. People who know what's happening in a given state, talking about the restrictions, the way people are dealing with it, the political climate, what is happening there that we don't get in the media because we all know what the media is like. But which we might get if people who are more serious and more digital savvy were on the job. Matt, thanks a lot for joining me. This is the first time you're on the podcast, so please introduce yourself for our audience and tell us what is going on in America with the vaccine situation. Thank you, Titus. So, hi, I'm Matt, and um, I write a Substack that's called Polymath, P-O-L-I-M-A-T-H. I've been on Twitter for many years, over a decade, horrifyingly. But I shifted over to Substack because I had a blog and it kind of just petered out, stopped writing on it mostly. But when COVID picked up, I shifted from doing sort of like, I would have considered myself like a somewhat data-centric political pundit. I would cover most things. I would talk about this or that foreign policy, which I don't have a lot of background in, just a little bit of everything like most pundits do. But then when things moved to COVID, I basically had a sort of come to Jesus moment. It was like, nothing else matters. This is the only thing I care about now. And especially because I joined the team at the COVID tracking project. I helped them do a bunch of their early data gathering. That was in the days when the CDC just wasn't doing that job very well. There was no real repository of information about how, what was happening with COVID on state by state. After joining the COVID tracking project, I backed off of all other punditry for a while, for a long while. And when I'm good, I still back off of it. I try very much not to have opinions about things that I don't know very much about anymore, because I realize I used to do that, and a lot of people still do that, and I just don't want to do that anymore. Having dug so deep into COVID data, I've realized that I can have valuable things to say when I'm really deep in a subject. And outside of that subject, my voice is not actually that valuable at all. So that's what I've decided to focus on. And um, my Substack came about because I got canceled and I just was like, I threw a hissy fit and I got off Twitter and I started a Substack. And I, I just wanted to have a place to talk where people weren't poking at me all the time, where I, I didn't have respondents coming in and derailing the conversation or anything like that. And so I just want to have my own space to talk. And that really blew up. And I think it blew up because I was doing a job that a lot of the press wasn't doing. All I care about is this thing. I'm going to talk about this thing. We're going to dig into the details of this thing. If you have a question, we're going to look at that question. I talked to epidemiologists. I talked to a friend of mine who I followed for many years who sort of accidentally, he ended up in charge of flu surveillance in Canada. I don't know if it's for the entire country or for just one of the provinces. Just he runs this flu surveillance and kind of got dragged along into surveilling COVID because it's a similar structure. And I'm not sure from the conversation that we had, we did a podcast months ago, I'm not sure you could even tell what his political leanings are from that because we don't talk about it at all because it doesn't matter, right? And so I've done a lot of data work with my Substack. I've done a lot of media criticism, but mostly around COVID stuff. And that's kind of where I am today is I spend a lot of my time still digging into the data. The COVID tracking project is shut down, so I've had to shift my data from them to another group. And I have a real passion for the stories. There are a lot of very small stories that really tell the big story of what's happening with COVID that we just don't hear a lot of. 
I like to find those. Yeah, I was just before our conversation here listening to your own recording on what is going on in Washington State mm. and your very interesting conversation with a guy in the army, a doc, and uh, what the situation is in the 51st state, so to speak, since the <laughs> army is fully autonomous in respect mm -hmm. of this epidemic situation. Things that I never even thought of asking, how are people dealing with this in the army? What happens when a brigade from abroad is redeployed? Some people come back stateside yep. and now I got a chance to even learn about it not just to scratch my head so I do think that there's quite a lot in this project there's going to be quite some interest in this the other part of why I follow what you're offering on COVID is that you're dealing with things without hysteria. Of course, there's a lot of suffering and some of the stuff, the data sometimes mm. just shocks you. But as you say, you don't go on about the political blame game. Right. So what I'm doing right now, and I've actually got my monthly overview of COVID data coming out next week, uh, next Tuesday. January, I started tracking vaccines. I have been tracking all the COVID data since last July on a monthly basis. And I go literally state by state. Every single state gets charted. I break them down into regions, which was almost just an accident. Back in July, when things were starting to surge, I noticed that they were surging in what was a regional condition, right? Politics did not seem to make a difference in the way the surges were working. And I found that very strange. And so I started charting the states. So I've got what I call the southern border states. I've got the Mid-South. I've got the Midwest. I watch the West Coast. I've got the Northeast. Right, And I chart all these regions on their own, which is nice because having 50 lines on a chart is just a mess. But when you break it down by region, you can see that COVID tends to surge region by region. And sometimes one or two states won't surge along with other ones. Virginia has been an, a great example. I grouped Virginia into the South. Virginia doesn't seem to be surging along with the South. And I think part of that is because a big chunk of Virginia is the South and a big chunk of Virginia is kind of the Northeast because it's so close to D.C. All of that to say, that's how I started doing this. And starting in January, I started adding vaccines. When I started adding vaccines, one thing that I think is so fun about watching COVID is kind of discovering things in real time. And that's part of the reason why I enjoy writing for Substack. Back in early January, we did not know what a good job was going to be with vaccine administration. I mean, everybody wants it to be like done now, but it can't be done. Now. It's going to take time. So let's try to figure out what's a good job, what's a bad job. And quite frankly, we didn't know, right? The place that everybody always points to is Israel, because we're Americans. If we weren't Americans, we might point to the United Arab Emirates, which is also doing a great job. But those are both really small countries, under 10 million people, I think, both of them. And the only country that's really doing better than the United States on a per capita basis is the UK, which is still a lot smaller than the United States. And so I went state by state and I decided really early on, I'm like, okay, we're going to lay down a marker right now before we really know what a good job is. We're going to say we want to hit 100 million vaccines by the 1st of May, which is day 101 of Joe Biden's presidency. So his goal of 100 million vaccines by May, fine, that sounds fine. Let's just use that, say that's a good one right now before we know anything and chart that. And so with vaccines, I actually have a dotted line that say, here's where this state needs to be in order to contribute to the 100 million vaccine goal. And right now, every state's above that, like a good chunk above that target. We are blowing that target out of the water. A lot of people want to then change the target in the middle of our goal reaching, which I find really weird and duplicitous because every time we change a target in the middle, it feels like people, they're either trying to grab credit or shift blame. That's why I decided really early on, I'm like, this is our target. I'm not going to change that decision. And I think that was good. 
the United States is doing a reasonably good job. There's a lot of variation between the highest state and the lowest state. I think the highest state right now is Alaska. I'm not sure why. It could very well be because they have small towns. Maybe they're flying in enormous amounts of vaccine to get the whole town. And then the town gets together and it's the winter. So like they're not going anywhere, right? Like getting into a lot of towns in Alaska, it's an airplane. You can't drive out of them. Maybe that has something to do with it. I honestly do not know. I'd have to talk to somebody in Alaska and find out. You know, West Virginia is also, it's a state without a giant metropolis. Maybe it's harder to distribute vaccines in large cities. That could be, I don't know. (laughs) Like, I haven't talked to enough people to really know the details, but I can just make these casual observations. And I think it's good to be able to go there and say, you know, I, there are people in the United States who have a chip on their shoulder about blue states versus red states. And I see a lot of conservatives. It's almost like they want New York to be doing poorly. New York is not doing poorly. You know, there are reports of vaccines being wasted and whatnot, but New York's right in the middle of the pack on vaccine distribution. A lot of people in blue states want Florida to be doing poorly. Florida's not doing poorly. They're not the highest one. They're not the lowest one. They're in the middle of the pack. And I feel like nobody in the media says that. And it drives me a little crazy. They just throw these stories out there. And in some cases, it's just them responding to data. And in other cases, they're clearly trying to drive public opinion with just like really incomplete contextless data points that don't even come close to telling the whole story. Yeah, I was also struck looking through your writing on this. Why is West Virginia doing so well? Well, I don't know. But it's an interesting thing to find out about. Maybe there's something there that you can learn. But, you know, it's good that they're doing so well. But it struck me immediately that it's like you've already set up a desk at a newspaper and you're doing the editing and sending people, Uh you could be sending people out to ask, how can we find out about this? What is happening with these things? Of course, you write that. First of all, we should be glad that things are doing well, that it seems like going over 100 million will be no problem. And yes. maybe I can look forward to a vaccinated nation, Yay. people getting their lives back. Well, you know, whatever's left, at least rebuilding <laughs> their lives, I guess, is the way to put it. That's more sure. honest. But it's also, as I said, a good chance to begin to learn about these things, whether it's for policy purposes right now or for future epidemics or just learning what is happening in this country. And I think there is, like you were saying, that there's a lot of small stories that you need to hear about. How are these communities dealing with things? What are people going through? What is the American experience? I think there is also something to be said for the moral implications of knowing these things. Hmm. What's working out well? Since in the case of the vaccine story, at least people can be both happy and hopeful. Things are working out. Finally, something is getting done right. And maybe there's something that we can help with or at least take solace from so they get less depressed. There are certain moral implications to understanding this success story state by state, in some cases, locale by locale, asking people, okay, what is happening in your little nook of West Virginia? What is happening in this or that place in Alaska? That does seem much more important than uh, figuring out what the press story is about accusing or excusing this or that governor, this or that state, Mm -hmm. and trying to get a bit more of the juice out of this dying (laughs) hulk of partisan hatred. (laughs) So, first of all, that just means everybody just go read Polymath, go find his Substack. (laughs) Subscribe to this stuff, you'll be better off. You'll be less depressed about these things and you'll feel less. I understand part of why people hate the media one way or the other because Mm -hmm. nobody in America wants to be played for a sucker. Mm -hmm. And people feel that they're being played for suckers and they don't want to take it. And in your case, nobody needs to be worried. So that I think (laughs) is very important. Yeah. That's why I wanted to have you on. 
There's a lot to be said about what could different media be like? What is it like when you figure out, okay, what can we learn from the data here? And now let's figure out who knows about this situation, this locale, mm-hmm. get them in on the conversation. Since we trust you, there's a new model of digital media in outline here. I think there's a really big shift happening. Not just the nature of media, but the nature of trust. I think very few people trust traditional media. I think talking to someone in a bar, you will find more information than if you said, hi, I'm a reporter. Like if you just came up to someone and was like, hi, I'm a dude. They would be like, oh, hey, dude. And if they came up to said I was a reporter, they'd be like, go away. Right. Which it didn't used to be that way. It used to be that people were eager to tell their stories. And I think part of it was that people used to feel like the media could be used as a bullhorn, as an amplification of the thing they wanted to say. But no one believes that anymore. Everyone thinks that they can't trust the media, that if they say something, it's going to be twisted and turned into, and I I have a whole Substack thing on this, because I've talked to people who are, I would say, substantially more pro-lockdown than I am, and I will absolutely tell their story as much as they want to say to me. I will give their side of things and I won't interrupt them, right? If I write about the conversation that we had, I would just give you a flat out, here's what they said, here's my impression of it, and not follow up with, and here's why they're wrong. I don't know if I'm old. Like, does that make me old (laughs) to think that that's like how things should work? But that's how I think things should work. And if you have breeders who are interested in my COVID response project, I'm a little bit behind because it's just me. And I talked with a friend and trying to spin up the website to support this thing. But that may, I may just have to like throw my hands up and throw up a WordPress and start just doing them as blog posts because it needs to get out sooner rather than later. And if you're interested in telling your story from your state, I have 36 or 37 states covered. I'm reaching out to people, trying to gather those stories as I go along. But, you know, I've got states that are not represented yet. And I don't want anybody to look at this and be like, well, I don't want to go back to school. I think the remote learning is the appropriate response for this. I'm not sending my kids back to school in fall because I'm not convinced that this thing's going to be going away. If that's where you're coming from, I still want to hear from you. I really do not believe that someone is going to look at my project and say, here is a way where I can screw with people. I don't think most people want to screw with people. I think most people do want to tell their experiences and just say, this is what's going on. This is what I'm seeing around me and give an accurate representation of their own life. Yeah, there's probably a lot to get out of that since COVID was the perfect example of something that we're all deeply, urgently and constantly and unremittingly interested in. It's not the sort of thing that usually happens with Twitter or Substack or some social media platform that is really for a very small minority of Americans Mm -hmm. is inflamed. Mm -hmm. This is something that matters to pretty much everybody. People, on the other hand, do have different experiences state by state and, of course, town by town. And those do need to become part of the picture. Following you on Twitter, I know how much you work to getting the data sets transitioning, as you're saying, from data sets once the project just stops and you need to go to another data set and all this stuff. But you make it easily available to everybody to figure out, okay, I can in 10 minutes get the basic view of what's happening. Yeah. Somebody who wants to ask himself, what the hell has America been through? (laughs) Can sit down and in an hour get your month by month reports and figure this stuff out. Yeah. Less of the madness, less of the hysteria, less of the confusion, to be honest. Like everybody, I talk to friends who tell me, well, I thought that this was happening in my state was a terrible thing. And there are people who also tell me that they don't trust what the media says, but they just saw this on the news. (laughs) 
Yeah. And we're all sort of confused trying to figure out how do we go forward to some new digital media where we trust people and where we're actually much closer to being part of the figuring out this is what is happening here. I'm going to tell you what happened in this city, in that state. It's more human and perhaps something that we're not used to since we're both of us way too much on Twitter. (laughs) But that's why I say that I think there's got to be moral implications to this sort of digital journalism. It feels much more humane, much friendlier and uh, much less sneaky. One thing that I think was really interesting was I was deeply surprised by California this winter. And here's why. In October, November, when things were getting very cold in the upper Midwest, we saw these huge spikes in COVID in South Dakota, North Dakota, Kansas, Montana, I think. But the upper region of the Midwest, as it got really cold, we had these humongous spikes. It got cold in other parts of the country and we started seeing surges, not quite the spikes, but surges in the Northeast. And then it moved down to the South. And coming into December, it looked like the West Coast was mostly going to avoid this. California, Oregon, and Washington were staying pretty level. And in December, I wrote something about like, well, based on how these curves work, we very much expect this to kind of drop off by the end of the year, right? We expect to be on the downside of the curve by the end of the year. And when I said this, it was maybe early December. California was below Washington on COVID cases per capita. Then in three weeks, California spiked super high, so high that it was almost as bad as some of the Midwest states. To me, unbelievably high. And it did this so fast that there was no way for me to anticipate it. And I was really not glad that that happened, but glad to see something like I was surprised, very surprised. I thought that maybe the West Coast was going to avoid this thing. And then in three weeks, it's very fast, a very small amount of time. California completely spiked super high. Washington did not. Oregon did not. There were surges, not nearly the spike and not close to the spike that California had. And I didn't anticipate that. I was deeply surprised. And I talked about how surprised I was. And the funny thing is that I went back and reviewed this data because someone got angry at me for saying that I thought we were going to come down on the other side of the curve. And they were like, well, the U.S. as a whole didn't. And I'm like, why didn't we? And I went back and looked, well, it's because California is a gigantic state and had this enormous spike. So when you look at the United States as a whole, we didn't come down because California did the surge, which is not to say I was right. It's to say unanticipated things happened. I mean, I've been saying for a long time, I don't see a correlation between lockdown procedures and COVID spikes, but I have been surprised, impressed. I'm not sure what the right word is. Washington never really has had the surge that a lot of other states have had. I'm not sure why. It could be that we have a culture that just doesn't need to be around people. I know we've got a lot of big tech companies, maybe those big tech companies keeping all their people home. Maybe that's a key component to this. I honestly am not sure. But I thought for a while that California was a part of that overall region and that California was going to escape this thing. I was wrong. I don't mind saying I was wrong. I don't mind being surprised. But I think like being able to be surprised on Twitter, being surprised is always a bad thing, right? If you didn't anticipate it, it's because you're dumb. Right. And everybody, everybody else always anticipated it. And they always knew what was obviously going to happen. And if you actually go back, and it's part of the reason why I like writing stuff down. If you go back and look, nobody knew what was going to happen. Right. Everybody's responding to whatever has happened in the last 48 hours and nothing else. That smugness I have found, I occasionally dip my toe into it now and again. 
But usually it's about stuff where I'm like, I've been saying the same thing for nine months and I just keep seeing the pattern. If I see a pattern, I try to write about it. I try not to just tweet about it. I write, I want to write it out in long form so people can see how often I see the pattern, why I think the pattern exists. When I see a pattern, I don't understand. I don't know. I like that. If you're interested in what I'm saying, if I sound like a reasonable person, don't follow me on Twitter. I still occasionally get really upset about stuff and it's just my id just barfing all over the screen. My Substack is where I calm down and lean back and think about what I'm doing and what I'm saying. And that is a far better version of me. Yeah, I, I've looked at what you write with very similar thoughts. That Not just because I admire the work you're doing, but because I'm curious about this transformation Marshall McLuhan would call television technology and digital technology. <laughs> People are still stuck in a television mentality where they've got breaking news. There's something new happening that's got to consume attention and everybody's got to seem up to date and relevant. Mm -hmm. Then everybody forgets about it because it's TV. Only sitcoms show up in reruns. Nobody's predictions from five years ago show up in reruns. Right. It's all forgotten. It's all one fantasy after another. And it encourages people to this smugness you were talking about as though nobody's looking, as though nobody's watching them and thinking, we heard you. We heard you. We <laughs> know what you've been doing, what you've been saying. You can't pull this on us. I was in a clubhouse recently with someone who works at Heritage Foundation, and she talked about doing a, a TV spot. Someone said something, and she's like, I don't know. And someone pulled her aside after the spot. He's like, never say that on TV. Never say you don't know. That is the wrong answer, period. Throw out an idea of what might be happening. Doesn't matter whether or not it may even make sense. Just never say you don't know. And that's, I can't live that way, man. Like, I've been on TV a couple of times on Fox News. Judge Napolitano had me on a few times. He liked the work that I was doing with data, but I can't do it. I, I don't think I would even say yes if someone asked me on. I mean, it's certainly not for like a five minute spot, right? I enjoy doing podcasts because you can elaborate. You've got time to let information breathe. And I, I like the dialogue, but the TV, man, it's just, it seems so ridiculous now. Yeah, exactly. It seems like we were stuck in a situation where people had to pretend to omniscience. Mm -hmm. Whereas now we can take the time and have our conversation. And at the same time, we can have everything remembered. It's written down. Mm -hmm. uh, as I was saying, people can look at your post, the entire archive month by month. Yeah. It's all there. It's all memorized as people are learning, right? I mean, even young people are still stuck in this old time TV mentality. You see people at 20, their lives perhaps destroyed or at any rate, their careers ruined over a tweet from their high school years. Right. Supposedly kids are tech savvy. How do they not realize it's all remembered and will come back to bite them? That machine memory is perfect, right. cheap, universal, instantly distributed, easily recalled, searched through. Right. Come on, kids, wake up. <laughs> well, they haven't yet because there's this delusion, but it's so much weirder when you see it in adults pretending that they have authoritative opinions about all sorts of things. Right. Whereas digital media is going to look much more like what you're doing when you indeed do have to have it all written down and remembered. So everybody knows that you're not lying to anybody about anything. Mm -hmm. Everybody is welcome to figure these things out mm -hmm. by looking for themselves. Yeah. That I think is another reason to hope that although we're all in a certain way depressed to see what the hell <laughs> happened throughout 2020, mm -hmm. there is a reason to hope. We are learning things and we are doing things better. Yeah. And there are new opportunities in media for anybody interested to be in any way helpful to this kind of enterprise. Yeah, I don't think Substack is necessarily the ultimate answer to this problem. The thing I, I have enjoyed about it is that you can make some money on Substack almost no matter who you are. 
Um, you might only have three or four friends who are willing to like, you know, toss you a little bit of money every year. You, you know, maybe it's your mom. <laughs> I know I've got I've got some friends where they have five friends and their mom subscribed to their Substack, right? But it's something, right? There are some people who care. I've been very happy with my with my Substack. I've got a lot of people who read. I've got a decent number of people who subscribe, and it's been an encouragement. And the the funny thing is, like when I've written for print publications, and the stress of writing for a print publication is pretty intense. You've got deadlines. You've got back and forth between your editors. You've got to get the stuff out. You've got to make sure that it is without typos and like all the stuff. If you follow my Substack, you'll see typos. Right. Like I am very frequently trying to finish up something eight hours before I'm going to send it out to people. People are pretty forgiving of that. Uh, Right now, I do two posts a week. After we get to May, I expect COVID to be substantially lower than it is now. We should be somewhere in the realm of 50 percent of the entire country will have at least one shot. That should make a big impact. If it does, if we get there, I'm going to scale back to one post a week. The people who follow me, I think, are fine with that, right? I got a friend, I subscribed to her Substack, which is about art and security technology and artificial intelligence and machine learning. And she is a beautiful writer. And she uh, she's also a mother of two. I think she had one of her kids last year. And her daughter's, her older daughter's school shut down for a couple of weeks and she just stopped writing for a couple of weeks because she had to make house and do her normal job and take care of her daughter. And it was a lot. And she just, she sent something out recently. It was like, I'm sorry, I just haven't done this. Nobody cares, right? We're all still paying her. Nobody feels cheated. And I say all of this as a way of like, you know, if you want to start a Substack, the people who are willing to pay you are not going to be cruel taskmasters to make sure that you're writing. Most of your writing is going to be on your own volition. That's my experience, and I push myself really hard on it. But it's less about the money and more because there's a lot of stuff to explore, and I like exploring stuff. Yeah, I think that comes to another very big difference that I think we're only beginning to see. TV land is fantasy land. It's all about being a celebrity. (laughs) Social media reproduce that in this awful way where... (laughs) Every like matters, every share matters, every follower matters. And that also means that almost all of us feel that we are nothing compared to the guy with the billion hits on YouTube or the million Mm. followers on Twitter. It has this inhuman way of looking at people. Who am I? I am the billionth and third hit on that video that's super popular. That's me. That's my contribution. Whereas what you're talking about is, again, much more humane. These communities are smaller. In some sense, they're localized, maybe because you're writing on art or on COVID, and that might only be interesting for a year or two. And there are various ways of localizing that also make the community somewhat more real, because you can trust that the people are there for that interest, not to be part of the glow of celebrity. Like Your Substack does not have glamour, (laughs) but it's interesting, and it's now and then fun. And of course, there are the Looney Tunes shorts. Right. Yes. That's something that I added just before all this started. I was working my way through writing about every single Disney short. I got up to 1941, I think, maybe 42. And then I stopped because COVID happened. Right. And Substack gave me an excuse to go back and write about cartoons again, which is like, I don't know why I'm so passionate about cartoons, but I just I find them. I was actually a filmmaker before I was an engineer, and I actually did some of my academic film work on very, very old works of art. The Jazz Singer, which is the first sound film ever made. Yes, the first talkie. 
I did a academic project on Birth of a Nation, which is the first long, before Birth of a Nation, the longest films were 15 to 30 minutes long, or most films were 50 to 30 minutes long. A big film was an extended short film, right? Birth of a Nation is the first film that clocked in at over an hour, and it was three hours long. It was an epic, grand, monstrous film with an intermission. The tickets cost the equivalent of $50 today, right? It's vilely racist, horrifically racist. The subtitle is The Klansman, and The Klansman is the hero. It's about the KKK being the hero. It's about the Civil War, uh, Reconstruction in the South, and then how Reconstruction was messed up by those terrible mixed-race people. Those are the bad guys in this. It's the mixed-race people. And then the KKK comes in and saves the white people, but also the black people to go back to their simple lives. Oh my god, it's horrible, right? But it defines film grammar. It defines how the structure of film was going to be used by filmmakers for decades to come. And so if you're really into film history, you have to watch this movie. And this project that I worked on is called Griffith in Context. And it was done by an extremely liberal professor that I worked with who said with clear eyes, this is an important part of film history. We can't erase it. We shouldn't erase it. But it's a bit much to ask students to go watch a three-hour massively racist film with no context. And so this project was about taking clips to be like, okay, Griffith pioneered the idea of cross-cutting, which is, okay, you've got an action scene where you're racing to save the heroine, but then you've got the heroine who's in distress. And before Griffith, you would show a minute of the heroine, you know, here she is, and then you would show the race scene. And then you would show the two of them coming together. Griffith's cross-cutting technique was shot of the heroine, shot of the horse running across the field, shot of the villain coming in towards the heroine, shot of the horse leaping the ravine. To go, like, it was this back and forth that's so natural to us, but it wasn't always. Someone had to define this idea first, and he did it. And you can't understand that until you watch this thing. I know we're like way off COVID stuff. Um, <laughs> but this this goes to like why I'm so excited about cartoons. Because watching early cartoons, you're watching how people are defining caricature, right? Disney and the Warner Bros. Studios had vastly different theories of how to connect to audiences, what was important when you're trying to make people laugh, how important the story in all of this. And you can see that as they kind of fight each other over how to tell audiences a story with animated films. I think that stuff is fascinating. I think early film defined how people understand visual medium. News grew up in that era, right? The early to mid-1900s, news became more and more of an institution. It became an academic, like the journalistic ethics became a thing. They defined how to do something, how to give everybody a fair shake. And because they did that, people felt they could trust news media, right? That's all gone. Right. Like journalistic ethics is barely even a thing anymore. Certainly not a thing you can trust on an institutional level. And I think Substack is breaking out of that. And in a way where we're in a really early stage of this, who can you trust? Why do you trust them? Right now, it's a lot of I have a feeling about this or I saw this guy. I watched him for a long time. That's how I know I can trust him. And there's some of like, well, maybe somebody trusts me. I can then transfer that trust to this person who I've been watching for a long time. Here's an epidemiologist. Here's a virologist. When they say something, they won't lie to you, right? They're not political. They're not going to tell you a false thing to try to get you to think something. And all of that's informal right now. I feel like it has to be formalized in the next five to 10 years. And quite frankly, I've never been so excited about anything since I started working in technology, which was when the iPhone came out. 
right? Like I started my career as mobile technology was beginning and I am as excited about the world of trust building and information gathering now as I was excited about the idea of having a computer in your pocket all the time back then. I feel we're in the same space. Yeah, this is certainly a great transformation that everybody's undergoing with very understandably mixed feelings. <laughs> you know, people don't necessarily want to give up the past, even if they realize that you cannot trust this media because it's still familiar. Mm. Nevertheless, over the last decade or so, people have realized that more and more things are turning into reality TV, into entertainment and then scandal. The news used to be all about respectability, gravitas, having the anchor look. Mm -hmm. And look at it now, parodied by Jon Stewart and it dug in its grave by all his epigones. And so with all other things, everything in TV turns to reality TV. Everything that was once glamour or gravitas is turning into scandal or just loathsome stuff. And that's in a way upsetting and in a way revealing, as you were saying, of just how much there is a connection between the news and the entertainment and visual media more broadly and America's great big cinematic adventure in the 20th century. Right. And some of that stuff is coming back, that past of 100 years back that's being re-examined. Memes, GIFs and those things like that do try to reproduce the level of characterization you had in caricature. Mm -hmm. But this is also, since we're at the American Cinema Foundation, we can say this. Movies used to do this. You watch a movie from the 30s or 40s, in the first five minutes you know what's going on and it's trying to grab you with something. Every movie is trying now. The first 30 minutes or the first half season of a show doesn't even exactly explain to you what the hell is going to be happening here. <laughs> right. Because it's trying to build a mood because it's simply in a different situation. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows what TV is. Everybody knows what the movies are. Everybody knows about streaming now. So like we're not in a hurry. Well, they used to be in a hurry and that got to fundamentals. <laughs> what kind of stories are we telling and in what way? And what does this mean? What are the moral implications for the audience? How will they feel about these things? How are they going to connect to them? So I do think that these are way more important things than people realize. And I also think that especially this issue, moving on from what we'd call image issues in the media, in business, in politics, people are obsessed with their images. <laughs> I'm young enough so that when I was growing up, people were more excited about the ads at the Super Bowl than the Super Bowl. Yep. That tells you a lot. We're celebrating images and advertising here, and that's crazy. We're celebrating fantasy land or, or, you know, awards shows in movies and TV for things nobody has seen. You're in fantasy land, people. I think that's going to be an interesting moment to see what happens with the Oscars this year, simply because no one's seen the movies, right? Exactly. Like it was a year without the movies, but not without the Oscars. Right. That's the show by itself matters. <laughs> So like this is a crazy land, as you're saying. The future is actually not fantasizing about images, but building trust, building reputations that people verify for themselves yeah. and that are verified in localized communities by subject, by place, by age, by whatever way the communities are built. I'm interested in that and I'm very glad to know that you're part of that and that you also see these things from a very different vantage point. It's, it's something wonderful to talk about for another podcast. We have, as with your posts, got around from very serious things to Looney Tunes shorts at the end. <laughs> yes. And I think it's about time for us to wrap up on this uh, high note. Well, it has been a delight. And uh, let's do this again sometime. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's been really great to talk to you. And uh, if, we, if we ever do wander into the same physical area, I, I enjoy meeting people. So, Yeah, as soon as the madness goes down, I will be touring again. I tour America three months at a time, and I'll stop with some of my friends in Seattle, and then look you up. That would be great. All right. All the best. Bye-bye. <laughs> Good to meet you. Bye.